This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. You have reached the Southern Remedy program where all of the topics are open and depend on you. That means that anything that you have been waiting to say, you know, if I could just, if they could just... Do uh, talk about the topic that I'm having problems with, I'll call in. Or you can always email us. We do try to answer those directly, but we also like to share them if you give us permission with our larger audience because they're always really good. And sometimes, um, you know, an email, you can do different things on it and uh, include some a little bit of a backstory if uh, if you have a lot more to say and give some context to it. I do have some great emails from this past week. I may share a couple of those if we have time, but we do want to give time for those of you who want to call in right now. I should uh, also add that you can always uh, listen to us on your favorite podcasting app. Just uh, download that or and access Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio, and you can pull that up and listen at your leisure. Let's go to our first caller. It's nice and early today. So this is Anna from Oxford. Good morning, Anna. Hi, how are you? Good. Uh, I've got this into bullet points, so I won't take up too much of your time. Sure. (laughs) About three weeks ago, I felt a sharp twinge when I was lifting a one-gallon jug of water. The pain began on my right shoulder and moved to my neck, and then to the other side of my neck. I took aspirin and ibuprofen. That didn't work. I was put on gabapentin. That didn't work either. X-rays said I had arthritis. Physiotherapy and more gabapentin followed. The pain then moved down to my right gluteal area. Then the pain concentrated on the occipital bone area. Ibuprofen helped some, but not always. And the pain is so bad I can hardly move my head. Any suggestions? Yeah, neck pain and arm pain can be connected in how you feel them. And depending on sort of the mechanism there, it can be several different things. Now, we, you know, in taking a history you gave, uh, I loved your bullet points, by the way. Uh, They do help to sort of clarify what this might be. Um, So uh, anytime you have something that's going on and all of a sudden you develop that pain, like you mentioned, you know, you're picking up something heavy with that one arm and all of a sudden you feel this sharp pain that happens. Because that really, when you tell your physician that, what we're thinking is that could be an acute injury to those tissues. So it could be a tear. It could be a dislocation. Just sort of depends on the mechanism. So that's important. And it's also important that the pain started right at that time. And you could, it could have been anything, you know, anywhere from your uh, shoulder all the way up through your neck. 
sometimes, depending on you know how how that mechanism goes about, you can you can do some damage to your neck just because everything's sort of uh, together there. It's not unusual in the days to weeks after that to have pain that sort of migrates, or another word we use a lot in the medical community is radiate. It doesn't mean you're getting radiation. It means it's traveling from one point where it starts to another. And you can be fooled by this sometimes because the point that it radiates to may not be where the actual injury is. And it's very common in joints and muscle tissues and ligaments that hold everything together to have, say, shoulder pain, but the problem's really in the neck or vice versa. So uh, it's not, un, un, you know, it doesn't surprise me that you did have pain in the other side of your neck or, you know, uh, after that first initial injury. And then it's sort of traveling around now. Um, I, I'm going to gander, you know, I guess that, well, I'm not going to go too far because I think you need further imaging. So an x-ray is important to look at any kind of dislocation or fracture or something that's out of the, the ordinary with bones. But it doesn't tell much, uh, if anything, about soft tissue. Sometimes they'll mention, you know, soft tissue swelling is seen. But beyond that, they really can't say, okay, you've got a tear in this muscle or you've got a tendon that's severed at this point. So a good exam can be helpful in localizing where the next step would be. And I think you probably need some imaging based on the severity of it and the mechanism of what it, of what happened to that right shoulder and your neck. Um, because it could be a disc in between uh, your vertebrae of your neck that's pushing on a nerve that's causing that. That could have been uh, the initial injury. Or it could be something still on the shoulder that um, just sort of radiated up. Another thing that's, you know, you mentioned a, a lot of medications that are normally used for pain, both acute pain and then chronic pain. Gabapentin's one we use, uh, you know, frequently for long-term pain. And if it's caused by nerves, if it's something that's related to nerve-type pain, that's a good medication to use. But it's not the best thing in the first week or two, honestly. Um, after that, it, it gains some some usefulness, and it can help you stay away from the things that can have more side effects like, uh, you know, long-term high-dose aspirin or, or NSAIDs like ibuprofen and those kinds of things. So that can help with the pain and inflammation in the area. But then, um, you know, beyond that, there's other things that can happen. And if you think about all those little muscles in your neck – Sometimes they can compensate and go into spasm because you're overusing certain portions of them. Physical therapy can help to sort of identify that and to work those out and regain function and mobility. But sometimes you need something extra. And a lot of times people will, um, and I've done this a good bit, if you're having some of the symptoms that you're, you described a lot of times I will prescribe, especially at night, a, a uh, dose of uh, a, a non-sedating muscle relaxer or something like methocarbamol or, or robaxin is another name for it. And that in combination with some of the pain medications can help just because it's loosening up the muscles there. But I really think you need, at this point, you probably need another exam uh, and by a physician and just try to localize what's going on and maybe some advanced imaging, which would either be a CT scan or an MRI of your neck and shoulder. Okay. Um, I was already um, at the ortho, and he was the one who said that it was um, arthritis. 
Yeah, the only thing about that, though, is arthritis is typically, although you can injure, you know, you can have an acute exacerbation of that, and you can certainly see that on an X-ray, um, but you don't really uh, have a pain that all of a sudden hits you like that. It's more of like long-term pain. So you certainly, you know, may have arthritis. That's I'm not dis- disputing that, but it sounds like what's going on may be a little bit beyond arthritis. Okay. Now, I, I guess, unfortunately, the uh, insurance company wants me to take physiotherapy before they even think about doing an MRI or yep. any other one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that, and that is, that there is a lot of data in, to support that. Um, so, and the other thing is it takes time, too. So, sometimes physiotherapy, uh, physical therapy can, uh, you know, for anywhere from two to six weeks um, can help uh, regain function and to decrease pain. Um, And then that's the point. If you look in the literature, most of the time, four to six weeks out is about the time to get those advanced, you know, advanced imaging like MRI. Yeah, I say I can't, um, I can't, I have to keep my head perfectly upright. Yeah. Like, if I'm lying in bed and I want to get out of bed, I've got to hold my head in order to be able to get out of bed. Right. Um, It, uh, uh, in fact, it, uh, I was moved to tears <laughs> the other night when I was trying to do the same thing. Um, uh, what about the, um, oh, this, I know it sounds like coming from left field, how it could have happened, um, like from a tick bite? Probably not. Um, you know, tick bites have a couple of things. The most common thing is, is local inflammation just from the, the saliva. Oh, no, I, was think- I was thinking more of that... Um, uh, like condition. tick paralysis? Yeah, well, my sounds silly, but about a month ago, my dog had arthritis of the back legs, and the vet put him on doxy, doxy, cyclin, doxycycline, yeah, doxycycline yeah. Um, for 60 days. Then within 60 days, he was better. Now, I don't think that this is... I, I don't know. It just it, it, it didn't sound right, but there was something going around where um, ticks can create some that they're, they're, that something in their spit <laughs> creates something like that. And I just wondered how stupid is that, or I mean, do we have it around here? Yeah, typically you don't see that, and if you if you know if there's some complications from it, well, you can see tick paralysis. That's mainly in younger children. We see that a good okay. bit in the in the ER where they actually look like they're paralyzed. You look for the tick, you take the tick off, and then within 30 minutes it goes away. It's, it looks quite miraculous actually when you see it. But um, yeah, beyond that, we don't have a lot of things now. Ticks can can carry other organisms that's, in yeah, them. Right, yeah. but those would be causing lots of other symptoms other oh. than what you said, and and most of those are also associated with fever. So things like ehrlichiosis or rickettsial diseases. Um, there's uh, certainly a you know we don't have a whole lot of Lyme in the state, although a lot of people will tell you yes, I have Lyme disease. Uh, it, there's a lot of problems with the actual diagnosis of that. Um, and uh, to, unless you've been out of state somewhere hiking where Lyme is pretty endemic, oh, um, yeah, no, not me. <laughs> yeah, that's not a that's not a big cause. But yeah, I think that's probably a little bit lower down the list. It sounds to me like if they said you got arthritis there, based on what they've seen, um, I I would believe that, and maybe there's an exacerbation related to the injury too of that. 
But I'd stick, I would stick with the physical therapy first and just sort of see how that turns out. And they can do other things. You might want to ask them. A lot of times they can do ultrasound therapy to the area, particularly for trigger points. Um, they can do really focused, um, uh, focus on a couple of areas where you're having the pain. Great. Well, I appreciate your help. All right, Anna. Thank you for calling. Let's go to Samantha from Brandon. Good morning, Samantha. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Absolutely. Um, To give you some history and try to use bullet points as our lovely caller before did. They do help, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, I am 76 years old. For um, the past, uh, for from the time I was 73 until I took care of my critically ill husband for three years in our home. Mm-hmm. After that, I had, I was tasked with more, well, you don't realize how much your mate does until you do it all yourself. You're right. You're definitely right about that. That was one stress. Second stress was, uh, unfortunately, my husband and I were not always married to each other. Mm-hmm. My children were in college. He had five that were. He had five children who were uh, still in school. Okay. Apparently, they believed that I had in some way uh, taken money. So that's. That's another social issue. Right. But it was a very difficult time. Of course, they had all the concomitant um, legal issues that I dealt with. During this time, my primary medical physician said, you need help, and I agree. Um, the help I asked for was the ability to sleep. She prescribed half a milligram of Ativan and also one Xanax at night. It worked like a charm. Mm-hmm. I was able to sleep. I was able to think I was rested. I had no difficulties. I had no side effects from this medicine. Uh, I might say that I'm 76, but I do yoga. I work out. I have magnificent friends, so I think I've kicked all the boxes toward health as an elderly person. Mm-hmm. My daughter, who is a 
very wonderful person who is a not a physician but a PhD uh, talked to one of my friends and it was their considered opinion without me present that the benzodiazepines were going to kill me. I know know exactly what the dangers of benzodiazepines are in the elderly. So I went along with the program, and I stopped. Well, I actually weaned off Mm -hmm. benzodiazepines. That was in March. I have not slept well. Samantha, are you taking anything else right now? Did they re-prescribe anything for your sleep? I have been prescribed uh, in the past for sleep to help me sleep. Let me see. I have been prescribed. uh, Oh, dear. (laughs) I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Okay. I have been prescribed uh, doxypen uh-huh. 0.6. Yep. <laughs> Felt like water. I stayed on it for two weeks. No different. Then I was prescribed a medicine that, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it. Stayed on it for three weeks. Was it Ambien yeah. by chance or was it? Yes. Yes, yeah. it was ambient, but I only, only stayed on it two days because <laughs> it made me itch. It was not quote-unquote brand name, and it just made me itch. So yeah. that was about two days long. Third medicine is, and has been, let's see. I'm sorry, um... All this time, I, there was a third medicine. Mm-hmm. All this time, um, getting up at the same time, going to bed at the same time, exercise, but not too late, uh, no food after 4 o'clock. Yep. I know the regimen for sleep. I gave up. <laughs> I just I well, am. Let, let me let me stop you I, and and talk about it a little bit. Maybe this will help sort of focus where you might need to go next because it does sound like you you have tried some of the the more common things that we that we try first. So insomnia or the lack of sleep is generally broken up into two big categories, and either that's trouble getting to sleep or trouble staying to sleep or both. And uh, the first thing that we look at is we take a good history, make sure that you don't have something that you're already taking for other medical problems that may be making you stay awake or breaking up your sleep, or that you don't have other medical medical issues that are doing that too, because sometimes that is is a culprit. And you mentioned, you know, a, a lot of things, certainly stress, depression, anxiety, those can all be manifest as as a lack of sleep, too. And we don't necessarily hone in on the lack of sleep there with the insomnia in prescribing medications. When we find other things, we treat those aggressively, and oftentimes the sleep will improve. 
you very nicely outlined uh, what we call sleep hygiene, good sleep hygiene, which is, uh, you know, as you said, no food after a certain time, certainly limiting your caffeine take or, or eliminating it from your diet. Uh, alcohol, people think, well, I can just have a drink and it'll put me to sleep. Uh, actually, it'll I make don't you drink. Right, right. That's great. Um, and I'm not, I'm not insinuating any of this. I'm just sort of broadening this out for our listening audience too. Um, but alcohol does break up sleep in, in the middle of the night. And, uh, and then the exercise portion is good, making sure that the ambient light levels in your room are good, you know, mainly for younger people. But I know a lot of older people that do this, too. They're like, I'm just going to read something on my phone right before I go to sleep. It actually activates the brain by doing that just because of the light coming off your phone. So it sounds like you're doing all that. The medications that are common, that are prescribed, we do have to, as we get older, we have to think about how they're going to affect you. And it sounds like that you mentioned the benzodiazepines, which is that first group of medications that you took. Um, those worked, it sounds like, from a sleep standpoint, very well. Um, they can cause side effects, though, and there is a, a little bit of an addiction uh, potential there with those. So I understand them wanting to get you off of that and maybe try something else. Um, the Ambien, it works a little bit like those benzodiazepines, but it doesn't quite, it's not quite the same. And it's unfortunate that you had the, the side effect of the itching with that. Doxepin, as you mentioned, in low doses has been uh, tried and fairly successful. There's a couple of other ones out there. You haven't exhausted the list. There are some other ones that could be um, could be tried. And then there's some that aren't necessarily prescribed directly for sleep, but they're prescribed for other things. Like there's a lot of antidepressants that are very good sleep medications. And although, you know, you wouldn't be uh, prescribing it from a, a depression standpoint, Putting you on the same medication may help with sleep, so you may want to ask your your doctor about that. But if there, you know, if your primary care doctor says, you know what, I've reached the end of what I would normally do, ask ask to st- to see a sleep specialist. And most people think, you know, when I go to the sleep doctor, that means I have sleep apnea. That may be one reason, but they're trained not only for sleep apnea, for a broad range of sleep problems. So. Um, that would be, I think, the next step. And then they may be very targeted with what they can do to uh, see if you can improve your sleep. Because that's the goal, right? To improve your sleep uh, throughout the night. And it's not just, you know, how much sleep you get, but the quality of sleep that you get so that you can function during the day. Um, but from what you have done so far, I would consider that, that uh, you know, getting seen by a sleep specialist to see if they might could uh, weigh in on the issue and get you some some good sleep. You've reached Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning, and um, we are glad to take your calls about any kind of medical issue that you might have questions about. Let's go to Michael from Waveland. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Thanks for calling. What's your What's your question this morning? Okay, well, I had an issue yesterday. I was trying to uh, replace um, planks on my um, deck, and uh, I had a stubborn board, and I went to um, press down on it with a claw hammer, and all of a sudden I got an excruciating pain 
in my uh, left side of my groin, just below my belly button and above my left leg. And I took, I immediately stopped, went inside, took in a leave, put some uh, heat uh, rubbing lotion on, and it felt a little bit better, but this morning it still hurts. So I took another leave and I took another uh, bit of Bengay and applied it to myself, but I'm still having problems with it. And I don't know if I stress something uh, or what. I just don't know. Yeah, Michael, let me ask you a question. When you put your hand over the area and sort of strain down, does it bulge out towards you at all? No. Okay, good. So I I think this is probably a, a muscle strain that you have, or a, and muscle strains are sort of like little micro tears in the fibers. Um, it's very common with uh, you know overuse injuries like you described. If you're straining and you strain a little bit too much, the weakest part of that muscle or tendon can tear a little bit. And it really has to heal up over time. It's not a quick process. Uh, usually those things take at least you know, four to five days, if not longer, a couple of weeks um, to, um, you know, to resolve. Because there's a lot of structures in and around the groin, there's, a, you know, there's some other things that sometimes cause gro- groin pain. Um, you know, there you can have lymph nodes that are enlarged in the area. Sometimes you can have uh, an acute injury to the soft tissue there. And then below that, on the interior of that, there's all kinds of things that go down into the leg itself. And then also you've got your abdominal content. So the reason I was asking about anything sort of bulging out was to make sure that it wasn't something like a hernia. Uh, so a hernia is a defect in the abdominal wall that um, can be exacerbated through, uh, you know, straining or something like that. And basically, it thins that wall enough that you can actually sort of feel the contents underneath. It's almost like a little balloon with a weak spot when you squeeze the balloon and it bulges out at that weak spot. Same kind of thing is happening there. If you don't feel that, I would say you're going to have to sort of rest up as best you can uh, over the next week. And um, don't, if you can try not to do anything, you know, the, if you if you don't sort of take it easy, you may re-injure it or make it worse over time, even if it's a little bit better. The NSAIDs are a good idea. Things things like Advil, ibuprofen, topical heat and solutions like that, they work okay. I would try cold actually in this case though, because if it is a tear, it's not so much the heat that you need. You need that cold on it, and that can also help with pain, too. So be careful. Don't put ice directly on it, but wrap that ice up. I'll tell you what I do. I put it in a Ziploc bag, just get some ice out of the freezer, and I wrap a towel around that and then stick it on me wherever, and then you can sort of, you know, sort of repeat that. Or the little uh, convenient, you know, I'm just sort of old school, so I'm going to, of course, do that in a Ziploc bag. But um, they do have those freezable, you know, little packs that you can get, those gel packs that you can you can apply to the area. But cold may work in this situation a little bit better than heat. But I would give it at least three to four more days before I would get somebody to look at it just to sort of see, unless there's other things happening. You know, if the pain gets worse, if you develop nausea or vomiting or you're, uh, you stop going to the bathroom, uh, you know, uh, not passing stools, that would be warning signs. Uh, fever, yeah, that would be warning signs that you may want to get looked at. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm due to see my doctor on the 7th of July, so if it oh, still perfect. bothers me then, yeah. I, may, I may consider an x-ray. Well, an x-ray is not going to tell you much. It, again, the x-rays are really good for bones. Um, if they notice anything on exam, uh, exam's really good in that area of figuring out where things are. If they want to, you know, image something, then it would probably be something like a ultrasound or a CT scan because that's going to show you the soft tissues. But X-rays don't really show show you all the soft tissue stuff, muscles, uh, everything else that's in your abdomen. That's not really going to show that or in your pelvis. But um, it's just going to look at the bones and joints. And this doesn't quite sound like that. You can have groin pain that is related to hip pain, uh, but uh, it's a little bit different in its presentation. But that's good that you have that appointment because they can do a good exam and decide what to do next. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for calling, Michael. We appreciate that. Let's go to Paul from Bogachita. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, doctor. Um, this may be down your alley, even though my age is 71. Four years ago, I went in thinking I had strep throat. They cut, they ran the strep test. It was negative. A little over 24 hours later, I was in with my airway partially occluded. They, uh, anyway, gave me a dose of antimicrobics. This was the weekend, of course. Hmm. Uh, on Tuesday, I saw my ENT, and he ended up drawing out several cc's of exudate from this thing. Fortunately, it hadn't ruptured. Uh, fast forward, I've just come off a second dose of antimicrobics for essentially the same thing, except I was much quicker to jump onto it, so it did not abscess. Uh, my question to you is, I know this is primarily a childhood disease. I've had it twice in four years. Uh, what do I need to do, if anything, about that? Uh, is am it, I just stuck with the random luck? When they drained that, was that like right around the tonsillar area? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, it okay. was an interesting thing to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> if it were me, I don't think I would describe it as interesting, <laughs> even as a physician. And you're right. Like, things happen on Friday that, you know, that are just the most inconvenient. That's when you're going you're gonna to have these things happen. Uh, as you mentioned, sort of, uh, uh, you know, a, a, an infection in your throat, certainly kids get a lot of those. Um, strep is one of the more common bacterial causes, but the most common cause is a viral infection of that. So CMV can do it. There are other viruses like adenovirus, enteroviruses. Adults aren't totally immune to that, though, and you can get that. Um, and I've had plenty of adults in my practice that, that – um, that they they did develop that. If the infection, um, you know, an abscess is just a a localized area underneath the skin. It's a little pocket that gets infected, and that it really can't drain anywhere. And that's why, you know, surgically through whatever means, whether that's a needle or whether they're opening it up or draining it out, that's important because pus under pressure really doesn't get better very well with antibiotics. It can, and sometimes small little pockets like that can be treated with antibiotics, but it's really hard to get that antibiotic into that space to treat the bacteria, again, because it's under pressure and it's not well uh, vascularized and you're delivering all that you know, through the bloodstream. So sometimes you do have to get a, a skilled surgeon, and that's a surgeon that specializes in that area, like an ear, nose, and throat physician. In your your uh, case, to go in and drain that out. 
Now, things that can set you up for that, a lot of people can have the tonsils or their lymphatic tissue, and it helps with, um, with clearing the body of all kinds of different things, and they're little antibody factories. All, all lymph nodes are sort of part of that body's system to, uh, to deal with foreign substances, so it's part of the immune system, and it makes these little antibodies in direct relationship to the things that it is presented with, like little parts of the bacteria will be presented to, presented to cells, and then they'll make appropriate antibodies to that. And then hopefully that would prevent an infection down the line. The thing about the tonsils are, for some people, the tonsils can be very big, so they have a lot of surface area, so you can have infections on that directly. And then they can also have little crevices. And some people have tonsils that look like the Grand Canyon, so they have all of these little indentations that go way deep. And while it's not a true abscess, if you can imagine that, you know, once bacteria get way down in one of those little crevices, they're more likely to set up shop and to divide and be sort of left alone from the body's natural immune responses. And that's what can cause the infection. So some people have tonsillar stones or tonsillar crypts. Uh, that's That sort of goes along with that. And those can set you up for that. So if you're an adult, sometimes the ENTs will say, you know what, this is the second or third or fourth infection you've had, or, or this infection is not getting any better. We think we ought to go in and take the tonsils out. And that takes care of the problem. I'm guessing at that. They're going to know because they've probably looked at that area. They certainly have looked at it to do the, uh, to do the drainage. Now, historically, we had, you know, if you're talking about 1700s, 1800s and before, we had a lot of people, not just kids, but adults that died of other types of diseases that presented this way. And, you know, the, the space around the tonsils, that little soft tissue space, is one of the, the, the anatomical places that you can see bacteria infection. But you can also see it uh, in the back of the throat. Uh, so it's, it's all along in those soft tissues, you have the potential to get that. But if you're getting, you know, a persistent infection in that area, then perhaps if you still have your tonsils, that may be an option if they think that that's a reason why, uh, cause at this point you, you don't need your tonsils. I mean, that's not a, that's not something that's a necessity. Yeah. The, uh, ENT that I saw, I had to see a different one for the second episode, um, yeah, he said, well, possibly removing your tonsils, but you really don't want to do that because the recovery for my mature state is uh, prolonged, to yep. say the least. Yeah, it is a lot longer. Um, it's, you know, I, it, depending on, even even in your 70s, um, it's still a fairly low-risk procedure, but it's certainly not like, you know, a four-year-old that gets their tonsils out and they're eating ice cream the next day and they're back to playing around. But to be honest... Any four-year-old that has any kind of problem like that. I mean, I've seen kids that had a, a uh, finger that was almost totally severed off and then reattached, and you've got to keep them still because they're going back outside, you know, as soon as they get home in a week. And certainly with an adult, that you wouldn't see that. So they're just a lot more resilient. But I would, I would sometimes the antibiotics have to be, because of that abscess phenomenon, 
we're talking about, you know, normal course of antibiotics anywhere from five to seven days for most things, and that's effective. But the type of antibiotic that they choose may have better tissue penetration in there, something like clindamycin um, or augmentin. And then the duration typically is a little bit longer, too. So sometimes they'll treat it from 10 to 14 days versus even longer than that, sometimes up to a few weeks or more. I had uh, two injections of rocephin about 48 hours apart, mm-hmm. and uh, at the same time I got the first dose of rocephin, I was put on augmentin for 10 days. Yeah, so that's a fairly and, that's a fairly long course of it. Yeah, and the rocephin sort of like throwing a cannon at it, so it's like a or a cruise missile, I guess we would say today. Uh, I probably need to update my analogies, but um, yeah, that's <laughs> fairly fairly high dose, broad spectrum antibiotics and. Uh, giving it in the muscle like that, it helps to um, – it's a big dose right away. That lasts about 24 hours, 24 to 48 hours, and then getting that two days apart followed by the oral antibiotics. That's pretty aggressive treatment. I think clinically I went from barely able to swallow that I'm you know, fully able to eat. Um, like I said, I just finished 24 hours ago, the last of the augmenting. So I'm going with – that I seem to be doing well. Um, I guess there's not a whole bunch I can do about it other than possibly get my tonsils out, which I really don't want to do. Sure, I, I agree with you. Yeah, anytime you can avoid surgery, the better. But um, yeah, I think that at this point, you're right. You don't really, there's not really anything you can eat or take or do anything better that's going to prevent that. Uh, you know, certainly brushing your teeth, washing, you know, mouthwash, that kind of stuff is good for your oral health care. But you're really not going to get back into the tonsillar area. All that sort of closed off by your soft palate. So, yeah, you just sort of have to wait and see what happens. His recommendation was anytime I get that kind of, uh, it, you know, it's unilateral. It's only one the left side that's bothered. He said, you get that, you go get some drugs. Yep, yep. I wouldn't sit on don't, that very long at all. Time thinking about it. Right. Totally agree with that. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Let's go to Sharon from Collinsville. Good morning, Sharon. Hey, good morning. How are y'all? Good. Thank you for being there. I just had a comment on the lady that uh, picked up the gallon of water and was having a pain. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I'm supposed to make say names, but um, I have scoliosis. I'm 69, and I see a psychiatrist. I saw all the orthopedics in, in my town and, and seven in Jackson and Birmingham. But um, a physiatrist helped me, and I mean, I got the neurospine clinic. I see Dr. Michael Winkleman. Um, and then the second thing I wanted to comment on was the lady that um, had sleep problems and had been on Xanax, and her family wanted her off of it. Um, I hope that that sleep study, like you're suggesting, a sleep specialist will help her. Um, the only thing that I really wanted to offer other than that is to be careful when you're elderly, not just about drugs, but who you put over you that's going to make decisions for you on your pain. Because I watched my step, my father uh, lay in a nursing home, and all the nurses were all upset. Um, he was prescribed .5. He had Parkinson's, and he had a neck injury where his feet and hands were twisting backwards. And he was only prescribed .5 Norco, and he weighed 180 pounds, and... Um, it was withheld because my stepmother was the one that made the decisions. So just be careful. I mean, I, I know that things are addictive. But I do get upset a lot when I see elderly people that are 
well, it's since, since the opioid crisis, you know, everybody, the doctors have to be so careful. But I see elderly people that suffer and hurt, and it's because the doctors are scared to prescribe anything because of um, the opioid crisis. It's just sad that, you know, the addiction, those people, everybody's treated the same. It's um, the people yeah. that are addicted and shouldn't be on them. Um, the patients that need them are treated the same, and I hate that for the elderly. That's really all I wanted to add. Boy, Sharon, you brought up some great points. Let me uh, let me just add something to that. Not much to add, though. Those are really good uh, with what you said. Uh, yeah, the uh, physiatrist is a, actually a great idea. And in addition to you know physical therapy and other things we mentioned, um, I didn't mention you know some more natural things like there are a lot of teas that have either things like chamomile, valerian, um, you know, melatonin is another one that's actually pretty safe that you can take over the counter. Uh, but actually, a physiatrist can help with movement and how you move and sort of training your body to do that in such a way that's not putting a lot of pressure on certain areas. So that's a great idea and can certainly help with pain management. I did want to make sure that that I did, uh, you know, just say amen to what you said about the, you know, pain uh, medications and a couple of points that you made. Number one, we should never make decisions driven on, you know, driven by fear. And I think, unfortunately, for everybody in all kinds of different situations, if you make a decision based on fear, it's probably not going to be the best decision unless you are getting away from a bear or a snake or something like that. That's what, uh, you know, decisions motivated by fear are really, really uh, good for. But as far as treating pain, I think, you know, we've gone, we've swung both ways on the spectrum. So I can remember, you know, I trained in the 90s and certainly I saw when when pain was added as a fifth vital sign. So everybody had to ask, hey, how's your, do you have any pain today? And then we were sort of held to a standard of treating that. And we treated it in such a way without having a lot of, you know, full knowledge of of what the effects of some of the opioid pain medications were going to do. We treated pain pretty good up front, but then we kept people on medications for longer than they should have. And there were a lot of negative side effects with that, including death. And there are lots of groups and ways to screen out the people who are going to have more of a hard time with that. But on the other hand, now, since we've recognized that, it's certainly we're very limited on giving that pain medication out. And sometimes, you know, in certain groups, we'll say, nope, they can't have opioids at all. You know, a physician has to look at each individual patient. And sometimes those patients, there may be some legitimate, you know, reasons why they need that, even if they are elderly. So if they are, you know, in severe pain, let's figure out a way to at least lessen that, even if it falls in the face of some of the other things that we're doing. So I agree with you. You have to treat the individual patient that's there in front of you and make those decisions based on that. And that sometimes that can be difficult, and sometimes that goes you know, against the guidelines. Um, you certainly don't want to break the law, but if they're guidelines, that means that's not going to apply necessarily to every patient. So excellent point, Sharon. Thank you for your call. That's all of the time we have for today. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. Tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.